0: This is our Prisons the Answer, a monthly show on Justice Radio with your hosts, Katherine Besteman and Leo Hilton. Today, we're talking with Reverend Jane Field, the Executive Director of the Maine Council of Churches, an ecumenical coalition of seven member denominations and two associate member congregations who together represent 437 local churches in Maine with 55,000 parishioners in their care. Specifically, we're going to explore why the Maine Council of Churches strongly supports LD 178, the parole bill that's currently being considered by Maine lawmakers. I'm Catherine Besteman, an abolitionist educator at Colby College. For the past two years, Leo and I have worked together to envision community-based alternatives to our current criminal legal system. This show explores how we keep our communities safe and asks the question, are prisons the answer? I'm
1: Leo Hilton, and I come to the show not only as someone who's lived experience in the criminal legal system, but also as a co-instructor with Catherine at Colby College and a restorative justice scholar practitioner of six years. So, Jane, in your testimony in favor of LB-178, you spoke about hope, redemption, community, transformation, and restoration as reasons why you support parole. Let's start by talking about these terms. What do they mean to you?
2: Well, um, as I said before the legislative committee, they're terms that if you wandered into just about any church around Maine on a given Sunday, you'd hear them um, in a very different context, maybe. But um, they have deep theological resonance for people of faith whose roots come from the Hebrew and Christian tradition, which are where our seven member denominations Uh, have their roots. So redemption, um, actually that word, (laughs) I I served a church over near Farmington and lived with my aunt in Wilton years ago. And um, I kept asking her what these churches were all around that she didn't know what I was talking about. I described where they were and they were redemption centers. (laughs) And she had to explain that that's where you took your cans and bottles to be, you know, to get your money. Um, So every time I I think of that word, I think of redemption centers, but um, it really means um, to take something awful, to take something bad and turn it into something good, um, that things can be redeemed. For for people in our traditions, um, we believe that love always gets the last word, not death. Um, And so and that God can work for good, even in things that are horrific. Um, Not to say, is certainly not my personal theology, and I don't think it would be the theology of any of our denominations, that God does terrible things, but that even from the worst things, God can redeem something good. Um, that's, That's at the heart of that word for many of our traditions. I will say that our council includes Unitarians and Quakers, And some of these more theological terms probably wouldn't resonate for them in the same way they would for uh, somebody coming out of a a Christian um, tradition. I'm Presbyterian, so I'm rooted in the Protestant Reformed tradition of Christianity. But I'm always mindful that two of our seven uh, have a different um, reality in terms of theology. Um, But even there, these were certainly the word hope, um, you know, hoping isn't a Hallmark card uh, positive thinking optimism. that That isn't what people of faith mean usually when they're talking about hope. It means that um, you have a vision for a tomorrow that can be different than today. Um, and for those of us whose faith is rooted where mine is, that hope comes from assurances that we have from our sacred texts and our traditions and our relationships with God. Uh, Other people are certainly people of hope that that find their um, foundation for it in other places. Um, Community is is a word that's really key to people like me who live in church world. Um, It isn't about the institution, the bureaucracy of a religion, that is at the heart of being church you know we don't go to church we are church and at the very heart of that is relationship and it's both horizontal and vertical if you want to think that way although I don't tend to but the horizontal piece is community and I think whether or not you're a person of faith whether or not you attend a church um, we all understand the importance of community love of neighbor um, and common good and so um and, and these were all words, by the way, that I put in that testimony because they show up when people talk about parole. And that intersection was really compelling for me and certainly a place, you know, I'm, I'm somebody who practices, um, in addition to Christianity, I practice the religion of stay in your lane. So um, when I testify, while I believe in a strict separation of church and state, and I would never testify and say, because people of faith think this, you should put it into law, that would be terrible, but I can say, as a person of faith, these things matter to me, and here's why, and that's why I care about this bill. And in the case of the parole bill, that was that was so.
0: Can you also talk to us a little bit about transformation and restoration to other words that you used in your testimony?
2: Sure, thanks. Um, so transformation is related in many ways to that word redemption, um, transforming what has been a, a bad, negative uh, harm and turning it uh, into something that can be uh, for good. Um, The restoration, um, we, one of our partner organizations, we have 11, uh, one of them is the Maine Prisoner Advocacy Coalition with whom we work very, very closely. Another is the Restorative Justice Institute of Maine. And they teach us at the council about the importance of restorative justice practices and the way that they can, and this links to one of those other words, community. Uh, help restore community when community has been harmed or wounded in an offense uh, that results in somebody being uh, arrested, convicted, incarcerated. You know, whatever path um, that offense leads, that victim and perpetrator, and victim and offender can uh, restore relationship and also in a broader sense the community can restore its relationship with someone who's been incarcerated um, and the incarcerated person can restore their relationship with the community and i think parole is one way that that kind of restoration has the potential to happen and not in every case i think you know in the in the spirit of full disclosure i should let you know that in addition to being an ordained clergy person I worked for many years in the domestic violence world, and um, and I differ from some of my colleagues in the restorative justice world on this, and I, I acknowledge that, but um, there are certain cases where restoration is not in anybody's best interest, um, and in in the work I've done in domestic violence, I know that Implying that an abuser should or that a victim should restore right relationship with their abuser is probably not helpful or restorative or transformative. um, In those particular situations and there are others that's just one that I happen to know a lot about from a previous life. Um, But I hope that answers your question about why those words resonated.
0: No, it, it does. Thank you so much. And especially for that important final note about um, what might be acutely different about contexts and situations of domestic violence, which is really important, I think, to keep in mind at the forefront of our considerations about parole. I do have a follow-up question. In your testimony, you quote passages from the Hebrew and Christian scriptures about prisoners. I'm yeah. wondering if you can tell us a little bit about those passages and how you interpret those passages from ancient texts, within the context of our current world.
2: Sure. Um, yeah, it, it again, it it kind of freaks people out or even gives people the heebie-jeebies if you start quoting the Bible in front of a legislative committee, and I don't do it. Um, it certainly gets their attention, may I say, but it, it's not to say, and therefore it's in the Bible, so it should be in our laws, but um, as a person of faith, these sacred texts inform and give me a, a lens, an orienting lens for understanding the world around me even today. And as you say, in, in these uh, cases, these texts are anywhere from two to 6,000 years old. The strongest one that just leaps to the front of my mind as a Christian is when Jesus was trying to get through the thick heads of his followers, and our heads are no less thick today, where we should look when we're looking for him It's in the face of people who are oppressed, who are marginalized, who are outcasts. And he specifically mentions people in prison. Um, It's that famous passage in Matthew 25: When did we see you? You saw me when you did this for the least of these, my brothers and sisters. And one of the examples he gives is, You came and visited me in prison. Um, But that isn't the only place that uh, prisons and prisoners are. mentioned in both Hebrew and Christian scripture. And then in the letters that circulated around in the early church, um, for example, in Hebrews, which is part of what some people call the New Testament, what I mean when I say Christian scripture, people are admonished who are part of Christian community, remember people who are in prison, as if you were there with them. So it's it's that love of neighbor embodied, you know, empathy taken to the extent of imagine and think of them as if you were there too. Um, so those were the scriptures that felt relevant to me the day that I sat down to write and imagine what I'd want to say to the legislators on that committee.
1: Isaiah sixty one one I think is the the verse that that was referenced, and that's one that speaks particularly to my heart. Um, Because I have found along my journey of trauma healing that people are held captive, not just by the systems and structures that exist, but also by the experiences that we've lived through. Um, So if you could just touch on that a little bit about how you have seen experience keep people captive and how potentially um, these conversations can help Uh, free people who may not see themselves as trapped.
2: Um, Well, you just preached a sermon, Leo, so amen to that. (laughs) Um, And by the way, in my office just around the corner from the day I was ordained, that text was read at my ordination, and I have it in a calligraphy thing framed on my wall, so it's important to me too. So yes, all of us, whether we've been incarcerated a day in our lives or for our whole lives or any or never, um, we're all held captive by things, often by old scripts, old baggage, um, by behavior, by actions we've taken in the past. And to be set free from those is um, healing and restorative and gives hope for a future that's better than the present. Um, I would say that um, people who, feel we should just lock everyone up and throw away the keys when they do something quote bad or wrong are held captive by their fear as much as people who have done horrific things and I don't mean to sound Pollyannish I I I, I'm not I'm actually known more as a sarcastic cynic in my family um I know that 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 holds you captive the guilt the shame the inability to see a way to ever make it Okay, to amend, to repent, which sounds like, you know, oh Lord, she's like, you know, a tent revival preacher, and I'm not that. But redemption in Hebrew, um, I mean, repentance in Hebrew means to do a 180. It's a physical verb that means you were walking in that direction and you turn around and walk in the opposite direction. But if you are held captive, it can become um, difficult to see how to do that. And in the case of Maine's incarcerated, my neighbors in Maine who are incarcerated, if there isn't parole, I would imagine that is really hard to see. This is
0: Justice Radio. Today we're talking with Reverend Jane Field, ED of the Maine Council of Churches, about the relationship between parole, redemption, and community.
1: So this push for parole is happening within the broader context of our society, seeking to infuse our criminal legal system with a meaningful avenue of hope, redemption, community repair, transformation and restoration. We seem to be missing these in our wider society, but we're working to infuse them in our criminal legal system. How might a push for parole based in those concepts impact broader society? What do you think?
2: Mm, that's a, we could spend all day talking about that question. There's a lot of layers there. Um, and unfortunately, I think one of the challenges to thinking that way about parole and about our system and how it could be better is tangled up in all of the polarization and division and in particular, um, white supremacy and racism. Um, and I know that's not the only thing operative here, but it, it's a big part of why people whose skin looks more like mine than um, my daughter's, for example, who's Guatemalan. Um, think th- that answer that I mentioned a minute ago is, oh, you just lock everybody up and throw away the key because they're bad and they're wrong and, you know, we need to punish people. Um, you can't talk about that mindset without talking about those other things. But when people can get past or through that and onto a different way of seeing, um, there is no hope or redemption or transformation that can happen if that's your only answer to wrongs that have been done. and parole isn't saying there wasn't any wrong done. Parole is saying there has to be a way back. Um, and you know, I actually did a master's degree in public policy before I wandered off to seminary, and I know that there are lots of people who can talk very meaningfully with data about why it makes economic sense and why it makes um, you know workforce sense for a state like Maine. And 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 there were people who made those arguments that day at the hearing. Um, it's not my lane anymore. Um, and I'm, I think it's important to also raise what you are with the show today, which is the moral compass and the moral imperative, um, regardless of whether it's good for the economy or not, regardless, and PS it is, it would be. Um, it, but even if it weren't. I think we should still be having this conversation. And so does the commission who in 2022 said, it's time to do this. And frankly, when I've talked with folks about this particular bill and about our testimony, um, they're shocked to find out. And this also answers your question about um, why people think the way they do. People don't even know there isn't parole in Maine. Like, what do you mean there's not parole? There's parole. No, there's not, unless you were arrested before 19 or convicted before 76, you know, that we don't have parole. Oh my goodness. Um, That's privilege on parade, by the way. If you don't know that, it's because you never had to know that, Um, which is another piece of this whole big mess. You know, there are folks
0: who don't want to bring back parole in Maine, who are opposed to parole for a variety of reasons. And one of the things that Leo and I have been speculating about is whether or not some of the pushback against parole reflects a lack of readiness or an inability to engage with these deeper topics of redemption, restoration, transformation, repentance, even hope in our communities. And so as we've as we've been having these conversations between the two of us, what is it that's irksome for people about parole? What parole models is what we would hope. We could model within our communities, both inside prisons and outside prisons, and across those prison walls. And so, is it a challenge for some folks to actually take to heart those those deeply profound concepts? We're wondering what what are you, what's your
2: thinking on that? I do think it's hard, and I think one of the major reasons it's hard is fear. Um, by the way. <laughs> I'm being way more biblically than I usually am today. But by the way, um, the one thing in both Hebrew and Christian scripture, if you add it all up, the thing God says to people more than anything else is, "Don't be afraid." Unwillingness to risk hope that that true rehabilitation or restoration could happen. Um, so, in some ways, I think fear is one of the biggest obstacles and probably one of the biggest sources of pushback. Another more practical thing that I've heard and heard that day at um, at the legislature is the Department of Corrections says things like, but we already have ways for people to get out early, which is so not the whole story. (laughs) And I know I'm telling you guys what you already know, but in case listeners uh, don't know that, um, the... uh, the community release program is only in the last 30 months of your sentence. So if you have a really long sentence, that's not the same thing as parole at all. Um, Yes, there's parole. And I think, what is there one person still left that was convicted 76 that would be affected by this? Like, that's not realistic. Um, And then time off for good behavior is unsupervised. You're just set loose. And that's not fair to the community. It's not fair to the formerly incarcerated person either as as far as I'm concerned. I do not have lived experience as having been incarcerated although I've taught in prisons. Um, So I need to be careful that I don't talk about something I don't know firsthand but um, to not have any support and any structure and to just be let loose, statistics show your recidivism rate is much higher than if you're in a parole program where there's supervision. Is really important for people to know that because that's the other thing, and this gets back to fear. If someone in a uniform who's got power and is the you know head of Department of Correction says it, well, it must be true. Mm, it's not exactly true, and you know another um, bill that we're active on is um, what well, we were hoping it would be a ban on solitary confinement. Instead, it's going to be a study commission to look at uses of solitary confinement. But those same folks in uniforms who have lots of authority to people who don't know any better um, will say, we don't do it anymore here. And that's just not true. They just call it something else. So we have to be um, savvy. Uh, again, Jesus said, you know, wise is a serpent and innocent is a dove. You you need to take those statements and do your own due diligence to see where the truth lies. Um, Yeah, we have those other programs, but they're not parole and they wouldn't do the same thing that parole would do.
1: But seriously, though, um, some of the concerns about bringing back parole have had to do with how parole would affect victims or survivors of harm, in particular, domestic and sexual violence, as you mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. So how might parole serve to create a pathway for victims and survivors to benefit from the concepts we've been exploring together today? So it's not just about prisoners benefiting. It's actually about the people who have been harmed in our communities at large.
2: Right, and that their voices are heard. And while I haven't read every word of the commission's report, I did enough reading to be assured in my own mind and heart that victims' concerns would be included in the process and they would be given voice and opportunity to be heard and considered and Parole isn't an automatic thing anywhere I've ever seen it in place. There's a parole board, there's a hearing, there's victim impact statements. Um, And in fact, someone on our public policy committee, when we at the council brought this bill forward and said, you know, shall we lean in and support, said, I just need to know for sure that victims' needs are going to be considered here. And, you know, we all were satisfied in the end that yes, they are. Um, and they are in other states where parole is available. Um, and again, it's not automatic. I do think, um, and again, the, my, my bias with um, having worked in the domestic violence field is that there are times when parole boards should say no. And even when they say yes, there should be things in place to protect victims and survivors. Um, that ensure if parole is granted that there isn't a re-offense or that people aren't put in danger and i am convinced and the commission is convinced that that would be so in what's being proposed here in maine um but there are lots of other reasons people are incarcerated that aren't domestic violence and sexual assault and so um we need to look at those too, and um In a number of cases around the country that I've been familiar with, even in cases of murder, even then, there have been cases upon cases where victim and perpetrator have found a way to move forward. And I don't throw the word forgiveness around very much at all, because I I don't. Yeah, anyway, I don't, Um, but transformation um, and not that they're going to hold hands and skip off into the sunset underneath a rainbow. I don't mean that, but it's hard work, but both people end up more healed than they were before. And that's what folks who do restorative justice work can teach us um, about how that's done. And even more compelling are the examples of juvenile offenders and the power of restorative justice. I know parole isn't isn't relevant in those cases the way it is for adults. but um still, you know that that there are people who know how to do this work and do it well, and that not only perpetrators but victims and survivors are better afterward um, and stronger and more able to m- walk forward into the future and not be burdened by the trauma in a way that they were before they went through that process.
1: Thank you so much for that, Jane. So today we have been talking with Jane Field, Executive Director of the Maine Council of Churches, about such incredible topics as restoration, redemption, hope, community, and transformation. These conversations that we're having today around parole have roots thousands of years old about the necessity and the power of building community and the necessity of hope, of inspiring hope, and and how it's not just beneficial for one type of people, but that we all need it and we all need these opportunities to come together in order to be able to grow and heal together. And that maybe, just maybe, (laughs) uh, this can be a catalyzing moment for our communities to come together towards restoration and transformation and healing and community building. And so thank you, Jane, for joining us and for sharing your wisdom and all of the bible <laughs> and additional <laughs> scriptures today uh, brought me some joy.
2: So oh, thank you. Oh, good. And thank you. Thank you for the work that you both do. Um, and and a, a big shout out to the Maine Prisoner Advocacy Coalition and the Restorative Justice Institute. There are so many wise and wonderful people around our state working on these issues and caring deeply about this, um, and and I appreciate that you center in your work the voice of people, voices of people with lived experience. Um, very very important. We did the same. We did a legislative workshop on the solitary confinement bill and had a survivor talk, and his mother actually talk about what living through that is. Um, all about. So thank you for doing the work the way you do it as well. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you.
1: So much gratitude, Jane. Thank you. And for our listeners, please next week join Marion Anderson for Voices of the Directly Impacted on Justice Radio. And with thanks to bluesman Samuel James for his gist, gift of music that opens and closes each episode in our series, and to Luke Brown, our sound engineer, we are justice rating